most kids after this year would remember when Kennedy was shot and when Spock died. Radio Drome. Welcome to another throwback episode of Radio Drome. I am Josh Hadley. With me, as always, is kind of here Cecil, who's going to sound weirder than usual. I never sound weird. You sound fine. You sound normal. I think Josh is just jealous of how extra sexy you sound today. He's got extra Absolutely. bass this week. Every everybody just they they want the they want the velvety smoothness. <laughs> that should have been the segue into the Adam and Eve promo, but I still got to introduce everybody else. So Peter is here, obviously, as you can hear. Mr. Incredible Tambor himself coming at you. And because this is something that's very near and dear to his heart, Fred Fritz is sitting in with us for tonight's episode. And say something sexual so he can lead into the Adam and Eve promo. Oh, well, now, now I can't. <laughs> <laughs> great, great. You wanted something sexual? I go limp. Uh. See, if, if you, you guys want, want something to, to help you, to, to help you not be limp, <laughs> you go to adamandeve.com. Use the promo code DROME, D-R-O-M-E, and you will get 50% off of a single item, three free DVDs, a free sex swing, and free U.S. shipping. Just use the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. And also... We're going to be talking about 1982 this week, but if you want to look for some of these movies that might not be currently available, you're going to want a VPN, Virtual Private Network. So go to 1201beyond.com backslash VPN. That'll bring you over to Nord's site, NordVPN. There they will be able to help encode your data, protect your data, you'll be able to get around region locking, all of that crap on YouTube, this video is not available in your country. Boom, you just make it your country. So go to 1201beyond.com backslash VPN. PN, and you'll be able to get 75% off of a three-year plan. That's only $3.79 a month for Nord's protection. This week, the week we're recording this and the week you're hopefully listening to this, was a really big week in movies if you go back 38 years to major influential films that that sent way shockwaves through the film industry in terms of everything that they've influenced, both failed at the box office this week in 1982, and that is John Carpenter's The Thing and Ridley Scott's Blade Runner. Both these movies just died at the box office. They were both critically reviled. I wanted to discuss sort of what happened, what was around them, why this happened. These two movies, as I said, they've become so influential in so many different ways. So why did they fail in 1982? Were they too far ahead of their time? Was it circumstances? Were, was it like a, a critic jihad? Why did The Thing and Blade Runner, which came out the same day, the same week, just flop so hard at the box office? In the case of The Thing, it basically, from what I had seen, it seemed that 
because of E.T., people had it in their mind that they were tired of the aliens being evil and they wanted this new wave of cute, friendly aliens. Now, I'm not bad-mouthing E.T. It's not E.T.'s fault because E.T., I do think, is a tremendous movie. The original version with the shotguns, not Steven Spielberg's CG redo where he be made them holding flashlights but i'm saying the original version is actually a really good movie but i think that from what i had read about the time period was that seemed to be the general notion was that they were very uh they didn't want this i mean even the director of the original thing from another world he had said if what is it if you want if you want meat, go to the butcher or if you, you know, like he was saying how the movie had no redeeming qualities and it was just nothing but nonsensical gore. And I think that was kind of the general consensus at the time was that they wanted more. Roger Ebert movies. called it a barf bag movie. Right. They wanted more of the wholesome aliens and not the violent alien. So I think that that was largely why the critics went against it at the, uh, why the critics went against the thing at the time. As for Blade Runner, I think it was just so far ahead of everyone that they really just weren't ready for it. Didn't take off until years and years later, probably at the very least, I would say a decade later was when it started to kind of get a swell of people that understood it and really started to dissect it. So I think that uh, in general, when it came out, it was just people saw Harrison Ford and they saw, uh, you know, uh, robots and they just thought that, oh, this is going to be one thing. And they ended up being a very philosophical debate about, you know, what is life? People just weren't ready for it at the time. And that's why I always say, don't always trust critics. Listen to critics that you agree. Like if there are a certain amount of critics that you listen to and you kind of have a similar vibe to them. Hey, I like this. They don't like this. You shouldn't take them all at face value because a lot of them are just going off of their own personal bias. And in a lot of cases, they're I, I won't say that they're wrong. They're they're just going off of their own vibe. And some of them, I do think in the cases of somebody like, you know, Siskel and Ebert, I do find that they've been consistently wrong over the years simply because of the fact they would review something, hate it and then come back years later and praise it. It's like, well, they hated it at the time, and then after everybody kind of came around on it, then they're like, oh, now we get it. And that always drove me crazy about them. I just, it just was one of my, my things. So uh, I think that that's really it. I think that the thing, people wanted friendly aliens, and I think Blade Runner was just so far ahead of its time. Well, I think what, the thing with Thing... It wasn't only a circumstance. I, I do believe that part of it was definitely because of E.T. coming out and they wanted this whole idea of let's have a family friendly alien and, and an alien that's more fun or, or whatever, you know, just because of the stigma that I guess Ridley Scott's alien had already created. But I think at the same time, it was also very much targeted by the MPAA, very much targeted by censorship groups, the people that thought it was too ghoulish, too grisly, too violent. Of course, you know, Siskel and Ebert were being little bitches about it like they are with most things. Blade Runner, I do think that a, a lot can be taken from what Cecil said, where people were with especially with saying that Harrison Ford was going to be in another science fiction movie like oh it's it's Han Solo and he's going to be in a movie with like robots and stuff this is going to be a lot of fun and instead it ended up being more of this very methodical very existential crisis kind of science fiction android sort of robot film i i think most people didn't realize that it was adaptation of a Philip K Dick novel which 
in if you've ever read do androids dream of electric sheep again it's a very methodical book like there's there's a lot of a lot of emotion there there's a lot of very very cerebral kind of stuff going on in that book ridley scott tried his best to do an adaptation that very much fit the tone of that there's obviously a lot of a lot of stuff that was uh was taken out but i i do think when people went into blade runner they were thinking it was going to be this like action sci-fi epic kind of thing and really it was more of a of a story as as cecil said of like kind of like what it means to be human like are you human are you a robot are you this like and and people i don't think were expecting that at the time especially with it being harrison ford and and people relating that to han solo and and stuff like that and i think that's why at the time people overlooked these movies and instead of seeing them for the just just the absolute brilliance that they that they actually are well fred you and i were actually alive in 1982 you're a little bit older than me you remember when these came out were you excited for these were these just another and i'll get to this in a little bit in the i don't want to say glut but the deluge of sci-fi fantasy horror films we got that summer all right well if i may just to go on a to, to paint a different line, a little bit different than uh, Cecil and Pitar, if I may. Let's go back to the, the reset button that everybody uses for cinema for a moment, and that was 1977, where everything changed. People forget how cynical the 1970s was. The 1970s cinema was dark, it was gritty, it was very cynical. And we didn't just, those filmmakers and those ideals didn't just evaporate. They didn't just go away. When guys like Carpenter and Ridley Scott were coming up, they grew up in the era, you know, at the the end of Vietnam. They grew up with the films that were the French Connection, Dirty Harry, these more cynical, darker films that asked questions about society and individualism. That was their training ground. So here comes Star Wars. It changes everything. We don't have to go into that. Hollywood was trying to catch up. People were sick of cynicism. They were sick of grit. They wanted a little more lighthearted entertainment, which is where I think the whole E.T. concept comes in. Why people, oh, E.T. defeated the thing. I don't disagree with it. I just think it's deeper than that. I think that there's more to it because I really gave this some thought. And it's funny when you think about it. The Thing and Blade Runner are shockingly similar in theme. They both deal with things on a genetic level. They both deal with the concept of identity, what it is to be human, who am I, what defines me as a person. In one case, a replicant, replication of what it is to be human. The joke that I've always said, I think people miss the joke about Blade Runner, is the ta- the tagline, more human than human. Philip K. Dick, before he died, even said, well, it comes off as very Nietzschean. You know, God is dead, man is superior. But if you think about it, the joke isn't that the replicants are more human than the humans. The joke is we've become less human. And that's a fear of mankind, that we lose our humanity, that we lose our identity. What's the thing about? That's not me. That's the thing. That's this shapeless, formless being. That's not me. And yet on a genetic level... It's me. They're, they're even postulate, the, the actor said, when they asked Carpenter, he said, well, even if you're the thing, you don't necessarily always know if you're the thing. And that's some heady stuff when you think about it. When you look at Blade Runner, when you look at the thing, that's some dark, nihilistic stuff, especially when you look at the endings, the true ending of Blade Runner. But we can't talk about that because they had the happy ending, air quotes. But the theme of the nihilism was still in Blade Runner. The thing and its dark ending. I honestly think that it's, it's a combination of the nihilism 
the cynicism, the darkness, the looking into the mirror. Audiences weren't ready for that at that time. They wanted happy. When people think of this time period in the 80s, they always think of Back to the Future. They think of like Star Wars. They think of all the other science fiction films. These are the first films that come to their mind. It's always on that second and third pass that they start to get to the stuff guys like us genuinely love though we didn't see till hbo i i saw blade runner in the theater because my brother took me but i didn't see the thing until at least a year later i saw that on hbo same with me my mom took me to see blade runner and the thing i caught on hbo same story yeah you saw harrison ford on the cover oh it's about science fiction it's about robots and a lot of people were they were in for sticker shock they didn't they were there expecting something kind of like star wars completely different and it it caught them off guard that not that they had to think but they weren't ready for those tones it's not even action oriented neither movie is action oriented no a little bit at the end but that's what i'm saying they're shockingly similar if you think about it they're they're weirdly similar plus you had the negative press that came from siskel and ebert one of the things that's really hard to do is explain movies that are heavy on tone and mood that is next try to here, let me give a modern example try to explain to somebody mandy today Try to tell them why they should see Mandy. It is near impossible. Their eyes glaze over. There was no it factor to Blade Runner. There was no it factor to the thing. There was great people. Look at those casts. There was no hook. There was no latch. And I think that's one of those things you can't describe it in that short. Like, what was it the famous producer of Star Trek said that you always try to think of a plot to sell to the public. Think if it was appearing in TV Guide, what would the synopsis be? And he said, if you can't explain it in a paragraph, then you're probably not going to have an, a commercial hit. Those factors, I think, all played into it. Yeah, because you? you can't really explain either Thing or Blade Runner in like bullet points like that. That no. pretty much is if you think of it, that's really like a disservice to both of those movies. It is. They're not high concept. These are thinking movies. But there's also the fact that both of these movies, and there are some others from this year that have the same problem, but both of these movies had high-profile production problems. These were very highly covered production problems in the sci-fi magazines and variety. Blade Runner going over budget, all of Harrison Ford fighting with Ridley Scott. John Carpenter initially didn't want to do the thing. It was originally offered to Toby Hooper, and then he quit due to creative differences. And then John Carpenter, we all know about that what probably would have been a disastrous first cut. We've seen all those those deleted scenes in the original script and how this kind of movie was saved in editing. So I think that also is something to take into account. These movies had bad word of mouth going in before the critics even saw them. The, the, these were kind of both water worlds of their time. They were highly publicized production disasters. And that cannot be understated as one of the things that may have poisoned people against these films. But then there's also the fact that I'm, I'm going to look at what's right around these two movies specifically, but this was a loaded year for sci-fi horror. All of the 1982 sci-fi fantasy horror films that came out would be like Airplane 2, the sequel, Amityville 2, the possession, Android, Basket Case, The Beast Within, The Beast Master, Blade Runner, Cat People, Conan the Barbarian, Creep Show, The Dark Crystal, E.T. the Extraterrestrial, Forbidden World, Forbidden Zone, Friday the 13th Part 3, Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, Human Highway, It Came from Hollywood, The Last Horror Film, The Last Unicorn, Liquid Sky, Madman, Megaforce, Parasite, Piranha 2 The Spawning, Poltergeist, Q, Secret of Nim, Silent Rage, The Slayer, Slumber Party Massacre, Star Trek 2 The Wrath of Khan, Swamp Thing, Sword and the Sorcerer, 
The Thing, Time Rider the Adventure of Lyle Swan, Time Walker, Tron, Visiting Hours, Wrong is Right, Zapped, all came out in 1982. That is a really full year for horror sci-fi at the theater. Because remember, VHS, not really a thing at this point. Cable, not really a thing at this point. To ask people to give their money on what is almost a weekly basis to go and see a sci-fi movie, that was asking a lot back then. You do not get a deluge like that nowadays. Actually, anymore, we're kind of all over the place as far as uh, content's considered. We don't get that massive wave of stuff, even with like superhero films, which I know people are are kind of saying they're they're sick of uh, cape shit movies. Even then, we were we weren't getting that massive influx of variety that we were back then with with like all these different types of sci-fi movies, all these different types of horror movies. We're getting like a few here and there, and it's just it's spread out a lot differently. It's it's not. Uh, you know, for better or worse, I'd say honestly for the worse, because the ones that we're getting, we're getting a lot, but we're getting a lot that are all very similar of kinds of movies, as opposed to back then you would get something that was like, you know, Galaxy of Terror and then something else that would, you know, and Blade Runner, which both would be considered sci-fi, but both are wildly different. No, this was a hell of a year for sure. Like not just for horror, not just for science fiction, like or for action. Like in general, we got a lot of subgenre defining films of that year. So it was like not only were was there a risk of the thing and the Blade Runner coming out due to MPAA, due to audience reactions and critic reactions, but it was also a major competition of what film was going to come out on top because holy hell was their competition for that year some of those films were fall some were halloween releases some were december releases some were you know early february releases the summer specifically this probably more than any other year i can think of was the summer of fantasy and i'm gonna i'm gonna say fantasy is horror, sci-fi, that kind of thing. Maybe I'm cheating a little bit by going back to April, but starting in April, you've got Cat People, you've got Silent Rage, you've got Basket Case, you've got Wrong is Right. I'm going to say Tag the Assassination Game. It's not really science fiction, but it would kind of be all coming out in the same month. And the only competition those had that were non-genre were A Little Sex, Penitentiary 2, Some Kind of Hero, If I, If You Could See What I Hear, and Partners. There was no competition. Everyone, out of all the non-sci-fi movies I just read, maybe people have heard of some kind of hero. That's probably going to be about it, and that's only because it was a Richard Pryor movie. The only thing to go see back then were sci- where there's fantasy movies. Well, uh, first of all, yes and no. I, I, I feel like I, I apologize. I want to answer something you addressed with Cecil Pitar, then move forward into this question. The first thing is, is that we have to address, when you listed all those movies, two of the movies you brought up were forbidden zone and the last horror film one thing people don't understand today and i don't mean that in a mean way this it's it's hard to because things are so together so connected that they don't really know how scattered everything was it's like trying to explain the wwe to people who didn't see wrestling before the wrestlemania boom like you don't know how different wrestling was before 
that whole Vince McMahon WrestleMania thing started. When it was all uh, when it was all territories. Yeah, it was all it regional was all territories. This was a different world. And back in '82, Forbidden Zone that didn't play in the Midwest, man. That was an LA movie that played in screens in California and stuff like the last horror film that would play stuff like that and maniac and that they would play the new york territories they would of course hit the midwest like the drive-in scene both these films might but you're talking about a very thin vein across the united states these films didn't really hit mass major america so now let's go to the second part of this what you're talking about guys that were 12 years old me what movies did we go see yes we did go see the genre stuff of course we did it was like Candyland, man except you didn't lose every week we were seeing a new movie no joke the one thing also though is we this is kind of hard to explain but we didn't necessarily just think genre oh we love genre that was not an overused word at this time we didn't think of it in those terms because it didn't exist in those terms we were going to the movies i remember i saw here's a movie that your listeners will not know probably it's called kiss me goodbye it came out that year it's with james conn and jeff bridges sally field Great cast. It's a drama, like a romantic comedy about a man that dies, James Caan, who basically his ghost comes back to visit the woman he loves, Sally Field. And it's all about not being able to let go, obviously. This is deep themes, man, for a 12-year-old. But I went to see it with my 12-year-old friends. We went to see all of these films back then, man. I saw If You Could See What I Hear, which is a drama about a guy who who's blind, played by Mark Singer. You know, Beastmaster! But we saw these films in the theater. We went week after week to the theater because we didn't think in those terms at this time. We weren't going, oh, we're the Starlog group. We're the Fangoria group. That wasn't yeah, it yet. Was just it was kind coming. Of stuff, it was stuff that was just coming out at the time. It was like, yeah. this looks interesting. That looks cool. I'll go see that. There, there weren't really opinions to go on. You just went and saw stuff. Well, that's why Cisco and Ebert were so revolutionary. Ebert, like, whatever, whether you like them or hate them, and their opinions suck. I mean, they said Big Trouble in <laughs> Little China was a, a, a humorless film. I mean, what film did you see, guys? Did you go see Sophie's Choice and think that was Big Trouble? <laughs> like, seriously, how do you call Big Trouble humorless? You have to realize these guys kind of really did have a lot of power. You had, in our area, we used the Detroit News and the Free Press. That was in Michigan. When you wanted to know movie reviews, yeah, who you read. You and had to read the you... paper, basically, yeah. back then. And not a lot of people were using the newspaper for movie reviews. They nope. Again, they were just going to go see stuff. Most and most, 90% of them were like a paragraph. Again, back to that paragraph. Right. The big movies, yeah, the big movies got the full page. of. It was usually like page D or right. E that was entertainment. They like a Spielberg. Like a Spielberg movie would Spielberg, get like Blade the big Runner review. did. Well, Josh said about the disaster. He's right about Blade Runner. The thing didn't get much play. That that it was in the that was in your star logs and fangos and stuff like that. That wasn't on the front page of newspapers and entertainment zines. They didn't cover that kind of stuff. But Blade Runner was big news. I hate to keep saying it, but it was you just have to sort of get into the mindset of the time period. We didn't care because we were having so much fun. And when the nineties hit and it all kind of came to a crashing end, we were like 
what happened? Weird thing to explain to people that just weren't there. It was very different. As we're amping up to summer here, for May 1982, you've got Diner, not a sci-fi film, Forbidden World, which, as Fred said, probably didn't play to you know, outside of L.A. and Well, New I mean, York Diner well. can be considered a sci-fi film if you want to look at it as a metamorphosis of how different Mickey Rourke looks nowadays. But then there's Paradise, there's Conan the Barbarian comes out, The House Where Evil Dwells, Annie, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, Fighting Back, The Escape Artist, and Rocky III. So, okay, May is not too sci sci-fi centric in may we're amping up to summer obviously rocky 3 is hugely anticipated conan hugely anticipated but then when we get to june we're now in summer you've got the meh comedy hanky panky you got poltergeist coming out sort of setting the stage for summer then you've got star trek 2 the wrath of khan which just killed everybody for a week then steven spielberg's et came out and said all right star trek stand down stand down and then the (laughs) same week et came out you had grease 2 no one cared family drama author author you had clint eastwood's firefox which no one cared about and then you had that movie sucked so then we get to june 25th and we've been talking about blade runner and the thing there was another genre film that came out that same day that never stood a chance Megaforce also opened the same day of Blade Runner and oh, The Thing. Man. All three That's of these movies were trounced at the box office. And I, I'm not 100% sure. I don't think Star Trek II or Poltergeist played a big deal in this. But if E.T. Oh, I think at least, uh, I think at least Star Trek II did. Maybe, but Star Trek II isn't, I, I wouldn't say competing with something like Blade Runner, Megaforce, or The Thing. Not necessarily, but it's just such a revered film. Like, even people who don't like Star Trek love Wrath of Khan. Like I said, if what if, let's let's look at this as a what if, E.T. had come out two weeks after Blade Runner, Megaforce, and The Thing, instead of two weeks before. Do you think it was just bad, bad timing? If E.T. had been pushed to July, do you think that these movies, the three were Blade Runner, Megaforce, and The Thing, do you think that these would have done better, or would they have still been just critically destroyed if you didn't have the parameter of E.T. to compare them against? Megaforce, I think that one was doomed to fail already just i don't think audiences were ready for something like that yet that was really more for american audiences more of an early 90s thing because i mean we all saw how well power rangers ended up doing with the golden shiny spandex and the vehicles and stuff like that i don't i I don't really think that america and north america at large were really ready for live action gi joe yet but it, it of course became the cult classic that we know it as as far as the thing again i don't think it would have done well either way be- just because of how much of an iron grip the mpaa had at that time like the thing was just too much of a violent gratuitous kind of movie i, I just don't think it was ever going to do favorably with the critics and with the the censors and all that stuff i think it was always going to be an audience choice pick which is why it's the it's the cult classic that it is now. I I honestly don't know. I think audiences still wouldn't have been ready for uh, Blade Runner. The thing may have fared better. Megaforce. I mean, Megaforce had such a huge marketing push behind it. Like they really wanted that to be a thing. I remember seeing like uh, on on YouTube 
they had video of it was on like one of those challenge of the stars thing where like <laughs> they were they were in all the different vehicles from the from the movie and it was just yeah. kind of the comic books advertised a toy line that totally they were bombed. trying to sell toys yeah, a toy comics, line they had a like video everything. game they had an all-out marketing blitz and i like that's just a case of i don't know re- I, I really don't know why that movie bombed i mean it just because i, of I just don't think was, people were i don't think people were ready for that yet like it, there really wasn't if you think about it was there really anything like megaforce at the time i don't think north america was ready for megaforce yet even if it did come out before stuff like et i still think it would have bombed i don't think i don't think the times and the people of that era were were ready for something as as over the top as megaforce was to be a blockbuster hit like it was kind of it was sort of like michael bay before michael bay I think in general, maybe it was too goofy, you know, because it's well, like, hey, we're going to be we're going to have camouflage. And it was these like brown vehicles with lightning bolts on them that just, I think people it, just thought it was too weird. And then cartoony. That and then the, the whole aesthetic of that hit perfectly in the mid 90s when they were doing the the reissues of Super Sentai with Power Rangers and that flew perfectly. So I think if you were to make Megaforce in 92, it would have done amazingly because it's, it's basically Power Rangers. Well, uh, let me put a pin in Megaforce for a moment. Let's uh, rewind the clock. You brought up Poltergeist, Star Trek II. As an example, to set up what I'm about to say, in this small town I grew up in, The Empire Strikes Back played in this town for nearly six months. This was 82. The VHS boom was just about to begin. It was because everybody real pretty much most people agree. Oddly enough, ironically, E.T.'s hit on VHS was when VHS kind of finally broke through. E.T. hit. That was when the boom really starts. But this was just the beginning of the VHS thing that hadn't hit yet. And so movies would play for a very long time in smaller theaters across America because mm-hmm. they weren't rich. They, they when you had something like Poltergeist. We can, I think we're under selling Poltergeist at this moment. Poltergeist was huge. Oh, in yeah. Pol- oh, I remember very, that. Very big yes. movie. You, Absolutely. You know all your stuff about ghosts, paranormal, all that explosion across TV. I'm telling you, Poltergeist was pretty much, not that it didn't exist before that, but it exploded after Poltergeist. Like that stuff was everywhere. ESP, psychics, UFO. I'm telling you, it all starts with Poltergeist, man. It was gargantuan. Then you gave the right hook. No, well, no, that was the left hook. Then you give the right hook. Star Trek II, <laughs> The Wrath of Khan. My God, yeah. This movie. So you had like basically one of the biggest uh, horror films and one of the biggest sci-fi films like coming out dude, pretty dude, much the same were, year. There were two historical moments most kids after this year would remember when Kennedy was shot and when Spock died. <laughs> right. I mean, it was exactly. Big. It was huge. And these movies played in theaters, not for weeks. They played in theaters months for months. And then they'd come back. They did re-releases constantly, which of course back it's back in real. No, it was back because <laughs> theaters were poor and they couldn't afford probably, you know, whatever was, you know, outselling theaters. Conan is a good example because the reason Conan Conan was not huge in the theaters. It did okay. It made its money. That movie found its audience on cable. 
Which is right. why Conan 2 was rated what? PG. Yes, because the kiddies who wanted to see Conan couldn't go see it. So, again, it's a different mindset. <laughs> and so these movies carried through. So, again, it was just another factor in why films like The Thing and Blade... If Thing and Blade Runner had come out in months where there wasn't this juggernaut, if these were more fall releases, I think they... I'm not saying they would have been hits. I'm not saying that. But, but I they do might have done a little bit better. They would have fared better. And then to make to wrap this up, to, you guys said a lot about Megaforce. All I can say is Megaforce fits into one of two time periods where I think it could have done well. I don't know if it would have been a hit. That's a weird-ass film. Yeah, I don't know uh, if it ever really would have like made big blockbuster money. So. It depends. No. Like you know, post uh, 9-11 times, possibly when shit was super Americana, or as I said, in the earlier 90s, when, you know, Super Sentai and Power Rangers stuff was getting really big, I think maybe, but I think when it, when it came out during that time, when it was, especially that year, you know, of movies like Poltergeist coming out, of, of Star Trek The Wrath of Oh, Tom it's up against out. Juggernauts. It's yeah, up against, it, it would have, it, it was too, it was too silly to do well. It was just a different thing. It was such a weird cog that just didn't fit the machine. Maybe the 90s and Super Sentai. Hell, maybe even during the Transformer boom. Yes. I don't think, though, it would have ever found a niche, though. Not really. With E.T. being as huge as it was, people were going to see it multiple times because in the couple of weeks after E.T. and the thing and all that, you've got Secret of Nim, which did pretty good, and then you've got Disney's Tron coming out on July mm. 9th. I think Tron failed for two reasons. One, people didn't get it because it's a lot of computer jargon and people didn't have computers in their homes at that point. <laughs> a lot of people didn't understand it. But also, and I don't think this is an unfair thing, I think Tron was sort of robbed in the way that people were not going to see Tron, not because I don't want to see Tron, it's because I'm going to use my ticket money this week to go see E.T. for a fourth time. People were seeing E.T. multiple times. They were going every week for over a month. So that ticket money to go see E.T. again is being taken away from the best little whorehouse in Texas and Zapped and Last American Virgin and Friday the 13th Part 3 and stuff. So some of these movies, E.T. was hurting them just by existing. E.T. was hurting these movies. Yeah, E.T. was huge. It, it really was. Like I, I don't think a lot of people realize just how giant of a movie that was. I know my dad took me to see E.T., Seven fucking times in seven the theater. Seven times? My, my, wow. my dad took me seven times in the summer of 1982. What the hell is wrong with your dad? My dad also <laughs> took me to see Star, or not Star Wars, Empire Strikes Back five times, so shut up. That I can at least, that I can at least agree with. That's a great movie. Fred, you were alive then. You remember that. Mm. People were going to see E.T. more than once. Sometimes the same day they'd see E.T. at the matinee and then bring their girlfriend <laughs> for the 7 o'clock show. Yeah, in, in much the same way about what I said about Poltergeist, I mean, there's just no denying that those three films of Poltergeist, Star Trek, and E.T. changed everything from that point on. E.T. especially because E.T. E was the exclamation point at the end of the sentence. And it was a big exclamation point. My dad hated science fiction. I've said this on the show before. Like, he really hated science fiction. I'd seen E.T. twice up to that point. Once by myself, or no, I was with my best friend. Then the second time I saw with a group of people. The third time, my dad even decided I should probably go see this thing. Because, and he took me. So I saw it three times in the theater before it left. 
again, this was a man that didn't go to these films, and that's what was happening. People, E.T. got the dollars that other movies couldn't get. It was getting families together to go see it. One person would tell somebody, and then families would go the next week. And then they would tell people, and then aunts and uncles and grandparents. And It was a juggernaut. It was huge. As I said, it changed the VHS market, because it was. I was thinking about it. It was 83, because you brought up Tron, right? And I'll never forget in 83, the top loader VHS for a consumer market had just come out, like a more affordable one, <laughs> like 400 bucks. They would, often <laughs> try to, they would often try to bill it, like, you can watch Tron in your own home. You know, Tron? Oh, my God. You Tron? Like, <laughs> really? You picked Tron? But once E.T. hit the affordable market, it was one of the first VHSs to actually be affordable to the consumer. It changed everything. So the theater, again, that's where you had to go, man. And then yeah. you waited for cable, and it took a, it wasn't three months later back then. It was like a year plus. Well, plus it was a while until we actually got like widescreen TVs and stuff. And to that same effect, oh, I remember decades. When, when, when they were selling like widescreen VHSs, I remember this commercial from the 90s when they were selling like how how much of a theatrical experience it was to watch Terminator 2 on VHS on a widescreen TV and it's like it shows the endoskeleton shooting its uh plasma rifle and a chunk of the the couch gets taken out it's like those are those are great commercials i i love shit like that <laughs> but also like i said you have to look at how how much and you can't blame et for this but how much that movie was pulling ticket sales away from everything else and i don't just mean genre films because you had other stuff that totally maybe not bombed but didn't do as well as it would have i think if et was not there to steal ticket sales like night shift Forced Vengeance, World According to Garp, Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, movies like that. Like, okay, Things Are Tough All Over, that had a built-in audience. Fast Times at Ridgemont High, that still did pretty good. But then to end out the summer, you've got stuff like The Beastmaster. You've got Amityville 2. You've got Pink Floyd's The Wall, which I will say, on the surface, The Wall seems like one of those Forbidden Zone kind of ones where that's only going to play in New York and L.A. But I can tell you, my dad took me to see The Wall in 82. I didn't understand a damn lick of it, but I do remember seeing that in the theater. So that played my sp my small town. I don't remember what distribution had, but the wall did play in places like this. And then by that point, you're kind of winding down the whole E.T. thing. But I think E.T. was the movie of the summer of 82. Everything surrounding E.T. was gobbled up in the black hole that was, we need to go see E.T. again. But this time, yeah. Aunt Edna can go. There really wasn't anything quite that huge at the time. I mean, Jaws introduced the blockbuster. Jaws was the movie that really broke the blockbuster and made yes. a lot of companies change the way that they were doing films. And then E.T. was just one of those tentpole things. E.T. was in theaters for years. It just it continued. I mean, that's something that is just it, it's like really people, people it's can't crazy. even people can't even comprehend that now because a movie hits theaters. It's huge for a couple of weeks. It goes away. And then, you know, three months after its release, then it's on home video. So the concept of having something that is in theaters and the only way you can go see it is in theaters for years just <laughs> is is crazy. By, uh, by today's standards. Consider, like, can we consider E.T. to be the first sort of re-released, reissued, re-edited? Like, because there's, there's all these different versions of E.T. There's the one with the 
FBI dudes with guns. There's the ones with the FBI dudes with radios or whatever. Well, it's it's like, only there's only two to yeah, my knowledge. I believe there's, there's, only, it's, I believe it's there's two, only two. The two different copies of it, but of, but of course they they use that as a reason to do a theatrical release for one copy, a theatrical release for the other one. Well, they just did like, Blade Runner too, by the way. So yeah, yeah, but that didn't happen until God. Well, like when did they did the ET? Spiel, like Spielberg redid it. Yes, that, that was the late nineties. Late nineties, yeah. like after DVD was big with that, I remember. But so, was yeah, that yeah. before? Was that before Star Wars or after? Like I'm trying to figure that out. Was, maybe. That, that was that was after Star after, Wars. After. Oh, okay, so maybe he got the idea from seeing that. But yeah, still, Star like, Wars it shows. Was, Peter, it really shows how just giant ET was that they were able to like keep getting away with all these different to to reissue it and redistribute it and show it in theaters again and and all this stuff. I don't know if there ever will be a movie that kind of was that much of a of a tentpole film because movies are because of the way that things are distributed differently now we wouldn't have a movie that was in theaters for years i'd say probably the closest thing to it would have been titanic but uh (laughs) even that titanic was in theaters for like a year and uh but yeah but et was just massive because of the had the movie the video game the all all the like uh merchandising uh the the reese's pieces commercials the the like yeah, I mean, it's just, it it was a juggernaut. Toys, too. Toys of E.T., plushies, action figures. Like, it was just absolute. And, and of course, like, one of the most notoriously horrible Atari games ever, too. Like, there's just so much history surrounding E.T. Like, it's just absolutely crazy. I'm really curious what happened to the M&M's executive who turned down product placement <laughs> in E.T. Because oh remember, God. Reese's Pieces was uh, was low. So they, they were literally about a year away from bankruptcy. Oh. That's the only reason they took the product placement in E.T. was that's eh, better than nothing. Reese's Pieces was literally saved by that movie because M&M's oh, was like, man. this isn't going to do nothing. I, I'm curious in... what happened to that M&M's executive that said I, no I to that. I think he cleaned the window of our car when I was driving through the city. <laughs> in in the book, it was M and M's even because they they were really like they and then M, you know who that that moron turned it down and then they went to Reese's Pieces. Thank God because Reese's Pieces are so much better than M&M's. Oh, I agree. I oh, agree. without oh, a doubt. But you are both M and M's. M and M's can suck a dick. Uh, pe- uh, peanut butter. Uh, Reese's Pieces are amazing. Absolutely. But, um, Butter and chocolate, the perfect uh, combo. Well, but, you know what uh, I really want is stale peanut butter covered in sugar. Give me more. Oh of that. yes, that's exactly <laughs> what I want. <laughs> like Dungeons and Dragons had a big uptick after ET because mm. ET there was that whole big long segment in the beginning right. where they were playing D and D. Actually, it had the opposite effect. One of the main focal points. You know, when they made like Stranger Things or whatever, they incorporated D and D and stuff, and you could tell that show was very much influenced by you know stuff like ET and general kind of eighties pop culture. So I I do think you you probably could lend bringing uh, D&D kind of into the fold at that no, time it, too. No, it actually was the exact opposite. Because remember, this is really when, yes, this is when all the churches were attacking Dungeons and Dragons for all oh, uh, boy, the satanic panic. Oh, yes, no. It, it, this was, no, I'm not joking, this was part of it. You go back, you could old find 700 clubs and, and all that episodes where th- like, they, 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 they love E.T. Shit. 
you go and find some of those, they'll be saying, E.T., it's this family-friendly movie, but they're trying to indoctrinate you by having them oh, the family play Dungeons & Dragons. <laughs> so no, Dungeons & Dragons, because of the satanic panic at the time, that had the opposite effect of D&D being in Stranger Things. Let's leave E.T. out for just a moment here. Let's go back to just Blade Runner and The Thing. Why do you think, then that once these started playing on cable and you were seeing these on VHS, why were these movies reappraised? Obviously, we all love both Blade Runner and The Thing, and critics mm. have come around to it. Why were they reappraised later when they were so hated in 82? Well, I mean, this is going to be a boring answer. It's because they're good. <laughs> That's really it. They were good movies that got overlooked. The mere fact that they got reevaluation, the mere fact that they did come back, or maybe the better way to say it is they never went away. These films did exceptional on VHS. They did exceptional on cable. We cannot, we're really leaving out how big of a factor cable was at this time. We really are. Cable was huge. And when I'm, they didn't have like the same way they do today to chart like on a streaming service, what people are watching. You know, when E.T. hit cable, which was a little while later, because they wanted a lot of money to show it. I'm trying to remember when it hit, but the thing in Blade Runner, definitely, people were subscribing to these services in the months those movies premiered. That's how they could tell. They were like, oh, this movie is our headliner. Then VHS sales, as we know, VHS sales really became the new norm to decide what movies were good and what movies weren't for a while. It just was, because right. of the new barometer, huh? Well, because you couldn't always tell by the theater. We already covered that. We don't have to, you know, they could be steamrolled. And so VHS, the because everything were done in units back then. They called them units. And it <laughs> shipped this many units and it did that many units. And you would see that actually in the newspaper. They would talk about these things. That became a discussion. So funny enough, the, even though Blade Runner and E.T., or, sorry, Blade Runner and the thing hit it, the wrong time it also they also hit at the right time because as i said this was the beginning of the vhs boom and so these movies were constantly being talked about on news programs tv shows the paper how many units they were shipping how many rentals they were getting in stores these films were big in those markets so was conan by the way conan found its life on cable right and and so these films got reevaluated and they were looked at over and over again. And that's why Blade Runner got a re-release with the original music put back, with the narration taken out. You know, the thing never really got that. But then again, it kind of didn't have to. It was doing so well in all those markets. Th I don't remember a time period the thing disappeared i'm sure the, john carpenter would disagree because he's on record when, saying that the thing's failure at the box office cost him work for years he said even after he'd be making starman and stuff people would be like yeah you also made the thing well it was yeah, very uh, it's because of the critics though it's because of the critics and the censors and like the mpaa and things like that because again it was a very violent film but as fred was saying it definitely found its new life on you know vhs sales on cable on things like that and i think it just goes to show this was not a critic film this was an audience no. film this was loved by the audience and it's proof 
by how well it did on cable and how well it did in VHS sales. Because just because of how much money you're given, you know, the theaters to run it for however amount of time or the, the politics that you're trying to run, it was the audiences that adored this film. And that's really, at the end of the day, what matters. And quickly to John Carpenter not getting work and the idea didn't make money. Let me also point out, this is the same time period, roughly, well, a little later, The Revenge of the Nerds came out and the studio claimed they made no profit off of. God. So these studios would hide money constantly. They you would. Think they're they're going to tell John Carpenter, oh, you've created a secret hit we're still making money off of. Of course they're not. <laughs> no, was it, was, it, was all in, uh, it was all in the movies they wanted to do well and the movies they didn't want to do well. There was, exactly. There was a lot of politics involved, and, and there still is. Yep, I promise you there's a lot of John Carpenter money in Swiss bank accounts to this day. Right. I don't mean his money. I mean money he should have had. There was all of a sudden people started watching them, loving them. And I think that's kind of what's happened a lot of times uh, when a film doesn't, you know, isn't a hit and then it kind of gets buried and maybe it, it resurfaces years later. Um, there's been films that uh, were never released on VHS, you know, decades later, somebody finds the 35 millimeters, they remaster them, they put them out on Blu-ray and then people are like, hey, wait, I never heard of this movie before. This is amazing. And it kind of gets reevaluated and then uh, you have people looking at it from a different perspective for better or worse sometimes things are reevaluated, and they're like hey we loved uh this movie but now we think it sucks and then vice versa hey this movie uh everybody said it stunk when it came out but we're watching it now and it's amazing so i think it's really just time and audiences and people rediscovering it and maybe a new generation of people who weren't around when it first came out that are now seeing it and are confused as to why nobody has been talking about how amazing this film has been for Ever. The summer of 1982, I think anybody can debate that this was not a defining year for genre cinema. Would this possibly be one of the best years for genre cinema? I mean, in terms of movies, not in terms of Blade Runner and The Thing and Megaforce just flopping, Tron flopping. I mean, in terms of putting out quality sci-fi movies theatrically. I think 1984 might be the only other year that could that could maybe compete with this. But what do you think of this summer this year of 1982 in terms of genre entertainment at the movie theaters. Just a solid year, really. A great year for movies. You know, we, we had stuff like Conan. We had stuff like Beastmaster. Like, it was just just a really good year. Just a great year for movies overall. The the ones that, even the ones that were flops theatrically, even the ones that were hits theatrically, like just really awesome stuff that all of it eventually uh, ended up finding their own respective audiences. Just a great year for film. Yeah, phenomenal. Uh, just an amazing year filled with movies that uh, have been major influences in just about everything, even films outside of their genres. Uh, they've been able to influence. So I think that uh, anybody that was able to see those films back in the theater in 82, like be happy that uh, they were able to witness the greatness of them. That's okay. Fred and I are happy. Since you and I were the ones who were alive at the time, I, I don't know if you did this, but I remember just about every single week there was something to go see in the theater, a new movie to go see, whether it was even something, it, I you know what, I'm not ashamed to admit, I saw Best Little Whorehouse in Texas in the theater. My mom took me to see that. I probably shouldn't have seen that at that age in the theater, but I did. Every week there was something to go see, wasn't there? 
Yeah, and that's why I will only, only because of this concept will I disagree with your statement about it being the best ever. It was maybe arguably the biggest ever. I don't want to call it the best ever because a lot of those years, looking back, they sort of bleed together. Like I said earlier, you, you, you kind of experienced them without knowing what you were experiencing. It's like having a great day going out, like going to an amusement park or something, and you just have the best day of your life. And by the time it's over, you're kind of like, wait, what did I do? It's um, all downhill we, from here. Well, we just didn't know what we had. And year after year, these amazing movies kept happening. It was, I would say, personally, I'd say maybe around 86 that started to slow down. It was still good, but it began to slow down in terms for, at least from my perspective of going from a young person to a teenager, you know, and growing up. Life was changing. I was changing. And the world around me was changing. It was just a great time. And, yeah, we were blessed and we didn't know it, and that's the real, the reality of it. We just didn't realize how good we had it, and looking back, it was a lot of fun. So 1982, we'd like to know if what the audience thinks. What do you guys think? Was this a great year? Was this a bad year? Do you blame E.T. for Blade Runner and the Thing bombing, or do you think those would have bombed regardless? Where can people find the Peter if they wish to tell him how right he is about everything in the world because he's Canadian and that's just the way Canadians are? You can find me and just how right I am wearing uh, my nipple suspenders like I'm Willem Dafoe in Streets of Fire on the Twitoris at Cinematica. When I actually post my episodes on Facebook, the Cinematicus, I'm not really using Facebook. I just sign in to share the link um, on Patreon at Cinematica on 1201beyond.com with other fine programming. Cecil, where can people find you, hopefully next week, with your regular microphone? Well, it's more so regular computer. Uh, you can find <laughs> me saying, Ita Gromufabits, goodbadflix.com, as well as goodbadflicks on YouTube, Twitch, Twitter, Facebook, and 1201beyond.com. And Fred, you're probably still just hiding in the corners of the internets? Yeah, you can just find me watching Grease 2, you know. You know what? That's a good. It was a good sequel. I like Grease uh, too. All know, right, I'm done ever talking sequel, to Peter again. It, yeah, wasn't no, that? It uh, was it? Was Max, right. Maxwell Caulfield? It was. Uh, He's right. Say no more, Monet Moore as uh, as the, the 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 good guy hero. It was good. With Michelle, it was with, Michelle fun. with Michelle Pfeiffer. It's a fun it's movie. Fun. Just don't think of it as a sequel, and you'll enjoy it just fine. Exactly. exactly. It's a fine film. And you guys can find me at 1201beyond.com. Contact this show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. Guys, try to be a cut above. Keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold. Have a good night.
Beyond production. Find it and other great content at 1201beyond.com.